This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Unbound Worlds, a new website for fantasy and science fiction readers. Find exclusive interviews, articles, book excerpts, and more over at unboundworlds.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 226 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jonathan Leatham. He's the author of 10 novels, including Dissident Gardens, The Fortress of Solitude, and Motherless Brooklyn, as well as several short story collections and essay collections, including Men in Cartoons and The Ecstasy of Influence. He's a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New York Times. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, A Gambler's Anatomy. And today's show is brought to you by Unbound Worlds, a new website focused on the best of the literary, fantasy, and science fiction universe. Unbound Worlds covers fantasy, science fiction, horror, slipstream, pop science, fairy tales, folklore, magical realism, urban fantasy, and anything else that's just a little bit weird. The site features interviews with many of the authors who've appeared on this show, including Terry Brooks, Naomi Novik, R.A. Salvatore, Scott Lynch, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Hobb, Tad Williams, Stephen Erickson, Chuck Polinick, Lev Grossman, and Andy Weir, as well as exclusive essays, extended book excerpts, event coverage, and giveaways. And speaking of giveaways, Unbound Worlds is currently celebrating their launch with an epic book giveaway. One lucky reader will be selected to win a carefully curated fantasy and science fiction library consisting of 23 different titles, including The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, Fire Touched by Patricia Briggs, the new Star Wars novel Catalyst Rogue One by James Lucino, Shadowed Souls by Jim Butcher and Carrie L. Hughes, and last but not least, the awesome new Game of Thrones illustrated edition by George R.R. R. Martin, featuring gorgeous full-page artwork, as well as black and white illustrations in every single chapter. To enter the giveaway, just go to unboundworlds.com sweeps. So that's unboundworlds.com sweeps. And now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jonathan Leatham. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I know that a lot of your early work appeared in science fiction magazines. So just tell us a bit about that period of your life and how you got started writing for those magazines. Yeah, well, I was um, living in Berkeley, uh, working in bookstores, reading a lot of science fiction and, uh, and a lot of other things. And my favorite writers at that time were all uh, associated with genres. I was reading Philip K. Dick and J.G. Ballard. And, uh, lots of other, you know, uh, mostly kind of new wave and, and post new wave science fiction writers. I was excited about the early glimmerings of cyberpunk. And I was reading a lot of hard boiled detective fiction, mostly older crime fiction, uh, you know, beginning with my obsession with my teenage obsession with, with Raymond Chandler and, and, and then my discovery of Patricia Highsmith and Charles Williford, some of the, People that were being republished as the uh, the uh, Black Lizard books at that time, and I also was really into what I thought of as a sort of uh, international fabulators: uh, Calvino, Stanislaw Lem. Uh, I mean, you know, my interest in this was rooted in my uh, my identification with Kafka, who I really loved at that time, and Borges. And I, for me, I thought. Uh, the natural home for what I want to do 
is somewhere in this area. You know, this is the kind of writing I want to, I want to do. And I was working in a, you know, in some ways in a vacuum. I dropped out of college. I didn't have a, uh, any, any whisper of a hope to go to an MFA program, which is what a lot of the writers in my age cohort were going to end up doing after college. I was reading avidly, kind of self, uh, <laughs> you know, self-educating and, and, um, I thought, well, I probably am a science fiction writer. I mean, that, that makes sense. Or I'm a, I'm a genre writer. And anyway, this is for me where the action, where the energy is right now. So along with sending stories to the New Yorker and Harper's and, uh, you know, Granta, which I was doing, I was sending them, you know, and I'm talking about like blind submissions, just sealing them in an envelope and putting a self-addressed stamped envelope inside that. And, you know, uh, writing it down in a card catalog. This was all done in the kind of, you know, pre-internet uh, vacuum. I was just obeying the dictates of how you become a writer. Well, you send your stories out. So I began to send them to, sh- to science fiction magazines. And uh, it was those that gave me the best encouragement the soonest. I was still getting rejections for a long time, but um, I placed a couple with uh, a few small magazines in the, in the field, places that, uh, don't exist anymore and people very likely won't remember unless they're really uh they're really you know archivists but there was a place called journal wired that published a couple of my earliest stories and um a place in i think it was out of maybe texas called aboriginal science fiction i think that was my official first published piece of fiction i mean i'd been placing a few stories with local poetry magazines in Berkeley. And I'd had a zine of my own called Idiot Tooth. So I was creeping towards publication, but the first time I sort of got, you know, a happy reply in my, in my mailbox, you know, I got one of those self-addressed stamped envelopes back with something other than a, than a rejection slip in it. It was from these very small science fiction magazines and I was ecstatic. I felt like I was launched. So my next efforts mostly focused in that direction, you know, and eventually the key, really the first, you know, uh, important piece of fiction I published in terms of my own sense of accomplishment. And I, I think it was a, it was a real turning point in my sense of my own capacities was a short story I placed, a long one, a, 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 a novella with, um, with Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. And the story was called The Happy Man. And it was immediately, uh, to my incredible, you know, delight and, and, and surprise. It was immediately kind of caught up a little bit in the, the very lively, uh, fan critical culture. And it was nominated for a Nebula Award. And I flew to Atlanta to, um, to appear at the, the Nebula ceremony. And I, I met all sorts of people all at once who were treating me as a kind of colleague. And so this it was a kind of social reinforcement. Suddenly I felt like, okay, I guess I really, you know, I found my people. These guys, uh, recognize that I'm doing something and, and, you know, the power of that validation <laughs> in the absence of all of the things that I, well, you know, in some ways I'd forsaken by leaving college. I, I was a, you know, I was a book clerk, bookstore clerk. I was working in retail and just dreaming of being a writer. So suddenly I had this, this field of reference and these colleagues and these, uh, magazines that I could send stories to and say, you know, I'm, I'm a Nebula nominee. And so it was like, uh, instant, uh, 
instant gratification. I thought, uh, okay, I'm launched. This is, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, another story of yours that was in Asimov's around that time that's really stuck in my mind was called Vanilla Dunk. Could you talk about how you came up with that sure, story? Sure, yeah. Uh, actually, it's really germane in a weird way to uh, talking about my my uh, new novel, Gambler's Anatomy, in the sense that that's a story about sports and about about games and, and represents, well, a couple of my early fascinations that are persistent that have never gone away. I've always been really interested in uh, sports and games as a, uh, a kind of uh, what miniaturized version of life, an arena uh, within the world where people go to enact kind of uh, microcosmic life experiences. And, and, you know, so this interest has prevailed through my childhood fascination with, uh, you know, um, all kinds of board games with uh, video games once they existed uh, with gambling. And of course, uh, you know, with fantasy sports once they existed, which, which they didn't back then. So vanilla dunk came out of thinking about basketball as a, a realm of play that w- could be turned into something uh, more allegorical or virtual and of course, I was also thinking about sampling and rap music and race. So it's an early story for me, uh, kind of knocking on the door of my themes of, uh, of, you know, um, white, uh, fantasies about black cultural style, which points in the direction of my, uh, autobiographical novel, Fortress of Solitude. I was thinking about having grown up playing basketball in the schoolyards in Brooklyn and how much of a racial dynamic was played out in that situation. How much, well, for me, initially, uh, humiliation and, and, um, and, and, uh, well, kind of an education in social hierarchies was played out in my attempts to, to, you know, wander onto those schoolyards and, and join a, you know, a half court pickup game. Um, and then, you know, my brother, uh, to a strong extent, myself to a lesser extent, we were front row witnesses, uh, to the birth of hip hop in Brooklyn and the, uh, the really fascinating al- al- alchemy of street culture that turned into this gigantic, obviously world, uh, historical cultural movement. And I thought, well, you know, so what if you could sample skills physical skills, somatic, you know, talent on the basketball court, the way you could sample music in hip hop. What if a white guy essentially could do to black, you know, sports performative style, what Vanilla Ice had just done with, uh, with rap music. Right. So the players, they have these exosuits that allow them to say, have this basketball skills of uh, Michael Jordan or somebody like that. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, it's um, a technology that I've invented where uh, it's meant to be race blind. Great basketball players are just great basketball players. So, you know, in a lottery like they have in sports, uh, new athletes are allowed to uh, pick which hall of fame player they're going to be able to perfectly emulate on the court. And it's a white guy who ends up drawing the the Michael Jordan skill set. 
I mean, did that, were you apprehensive at all as a young writer dealing with those really fraught racial themes? <laughs> I should have been. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sure that I, I was, uh, uh, completely, um, up, you know, uh, what, what do you say? Ab- above my pay grade in terms <laughs> of, uh, social, racial, historical understanding. What I had were my, uh, you know, adolescent, uh, kind of uh, bravado and boldness and my sense of um, excitement at, at identifying themes that seemed big enough to go at, you know, I was just, again, it's so difficult to reproduce how isolated I was at that time. I was working on my own instincts. I was working on research done, not online because there was no online. There was, there were books and I, I was reading the books that I happened to find about, uh, you know, sports and, and race and, 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 uh, the things I cared about, you know, music criticism. I was writing this story, very ambitious story. I was writing it on the strength of reading, uh, Peter Gralnick writing about Elvis Presley. I was writing it on the strength of reading a really wonderful monograph, uh, more than a monograph, big fat, uh, survey, uh, academic survey on sports in American fiction by a, uh, academic with an unforgettable, lovely name, Christian Messenger. And Christian Messenger had written about baseball fiction, which I was very interested in. And and he'd written about football fiction. And then he has this chapter where he says, well, basketball fiction sort of doesn't exist. No one's tried it. It's, 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 there's, it's a barely developed genre, which is one of the things I took as a kind of dare or an invitation. And he proposes, of course, that one of the reasons that it's a, a future fiction, it's a, it's a fiction that people haven't felt comfortable uh, trying to create was that it was so much a, an arena for racial dynamics. And I thought, well, I grew up, you know, as an involuntary, uh, kind of, um, sponge for racial situations. I was, I was immersed in them by the nature of the life I'd known as a, as a child. And so I thought, I know enough. I know, I know what I feel about this stuff, or I know what I, I know what questions I want to ask of this material. And I didn't, I didn't have a sense of being in a world where other people were going to, um, uh, quantify my expertise to be talking about race. I, I was a fiction writer. I thought, uh, it's my job to make stuff up and, uh, use, use the, the license that comes, you know, with the creative, uh, it's a creative passport, you know, uh, now that didn't mean I didn't feel that I had to work with a kind of ethical scrupulousness, uh, to make it meaningful, not to make it, uh, you know, half-assed or, or cursory or, or to reach for easy received pronouncements that were lying to hand on one side or the other of this argument, but to make my own, you know, diligent exploration within the space of the writing. But I didn't think I had to kind of like go and, uh, uh, for better or worse, maybe some people would tell me I should have, that I had to go and kind of do some, uh, uh, research in a, in a sociological sense. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of writers, if they start out writing science fiction, they worry that they'll not be taken seriously if they try to write something else. Was that something that you were concerned about or was, were you also sort of disconnected from that whole? Well, I, I guess I was a kind of a combination of naive and willful at the same time. I, I was working on, on enthusiasm and in innocence, 
of a lot of anxieties. I mean, the one that I just rehearsed for you there. <laughs> I was really innocent of, of what kinds of anxieties should accompany my creative life. I just thought, uh, I'm going to do this. It matters to me. I'm full of fine intentions and those will translate. They'll be reflected in the work. My feelings about genre boundaries or the possible uh, stigma that might attach to having published in a genre context I mean, I wasn't completely unaware of those things, but in a way I decided for myself that they didn't apply to me, that I was going to write uh, with a kind of boundary smashing enthusiasm that would be its own explanation. It would be its own justification. So many of the writers I loved, it seemed to me, you know, with Patricia Highsmith in crime writing or, or, or Philip K. Dick, in science fiction or J.G. Ballard or, you know, or for that matter, Shirley Jackson, who in some ways had had a slightly disreputable aura attached to her of the horror writer, but to me seems so fundamentally literary, such a, you know, remarkable uh, classic short story writer and novelist. I just felt, oh, come on. Everyone gets it now. You know, in a way I declared the, uh, revolution to be accomplished, even though it wasn't. And I, at the same time, I thought, you know, yeah, maybe I'll run into some of this pushback, uh, when I try to do other kinds of things, but that will be interesting. That will be a, a battle worth fighting and I'll be good at it. I'm articulate on these subjects. I was just, I felt like I was going to talk the problem to death, <laughs> much as I'm doing to, <laughs> right now. I just thought, I'm, you know, if, if, if this war isn't won, it's, it's, it's like 80% won. It seemed to me it was by implication. You know, the, 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 the writing was on the wall. I felt Don DeLillo, you know, wrote virtual science fiction and Donald Barthelme wrote absurdist, fantastical stories that were in the New Yorker that were strongly akin to, you know, Italo Calvino and also to, you know, um, R.A. Lafferty or, or, or Robert Sheckley. And to me, it just seemed like transparent that, uh, that these arguments were, if they still existed, they existed because of uh, calcified bias, old hierarchical and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, kind of class anxious systems of, of, um, of, you know, putting quarantines around popular culture that rock and roll and film noir and, uh, you know, uh, R. Crumb and, and the great science fiction writers and Raymond Chandler had all made absurd that the, the, the existence of so much vitality in popular and vernacular genres and, and, and modes made that, that argument absurd to anyone who actually cared about, uh, culture, who cared about, um, being excited and, 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 you know, and enlightened by their encounter with culture. So I thought, you know, no one, no, no one worth arguing with even still holds this view. Well, I was quite innocent in some ways. I mean, the, the kerfuffle around Bob Dylan's, uh, Nobel just this last couple of days gives you all the evidence you need that, uh, ancient hidebound, uh, hierarchies and anxieties about keeping a quarantine between high and low, um, 
that those things are, are powerfully alive. So I was wrong <laughs> in a way, um, but I'm still devoted in a way to the part of myself that, uh, that went forward at that moment with this marvelous innocence and, and optimism about the eradication of these, uh, fundamentally pointless, uh, high, low, you know, quarantines, the sort of stigma attached to certain arenas of cultural activity like, like rock and roll or, or comic books or, uh, you know, pulp genres like, uh, the hardboiled detective story or, or science fiction, because I think the fundamental associations of those things with the center of American cultural life has been demonstrated over and over and over again. And, and, uh, you know, maybe it, by embodying that positivity, uh, when I, when I began, I did help change a few minds at least. Yeah. Well, you mentioned comic books and another story of yours I really wanted to ask you about is called Super Goat Man. That's always really stuck with me. Could you just talk about what you were going for with that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I was, uh, I mean, I based that story first of all on a dream. It's one of a handful of stories I can point to that originate with a really vivid dream image that, uh, seemed to, you know, be trying to pronounce something to me. And I had to begin writing to figure out what it was, <laughs> what it was trying to say. And, you know, in a way, I think of Super Goat Man as an emblem of my divided, uh, you might almost say my tortured, uh, feelings about my parents' generation, the kind of the bohemian boomers, right? The, the sixties radicals and, and, and artists who dared to ask so much of, you know, who dared to transform themselves and try to transform the world so, uh, uh, with so fearlessly in the, in the late fifties and through the sixties and, and right into the very beginning of the seventies when I was coming to consciousness. And, um, of course the, the main character in Super Goat Man is, is of that generation and the narrator who's watching him and thinking about him and quite ambivalent about him, uh, is my age. Someone who came, came of age right as the sort of idealism of the sixties generation was meeting so much pushback and resistance and was curdling and revealing its contradictions at the beginning of, and through the middle of the 1970s. So it's a story about, how beautiful and absurd and painful and, and, and exciting it was to have, uh, parents who, you know, went all in on the sixties, essentially. I think of Super Goatman really as a kind of disguised vision of Allen Ginsberg. You know, he's like this, uh, character like Ginsberg who his, his bravery is super heroic and he's, totally attractive and totally ridiculous at the same time. Uh, and he is capable on the one hand of changing everything, transforming the culture. And at the same time, paradoxically, and, and in, in a very strange and painful way, he's capable of being, uh, put back in the box, you know, by the, by the time of Reaganism, uh, a figure like Ginsburg seems like a relic and easily mocked. And so super goat man is, is meant to, 
somehow be an emblem of all of that difficult stuff. Um, and, um, you know, when I was reading comic books in the seventies, it was, uh, the, what the tail end of the silver, the Marvel silver age. And the, I was reading the older comic books because that was one of the things you did was read, you know, old tattered 1960s Kirby, uh, you know, comic books, the fantastic four, the classic stuff that someone's older brother had in a, in a long box, but the books that were on the newsstands that were sort of mine, that were my era were, they were, well, they were written by hippies like Steve Gerber or, or, you know, um, Jim Starlin, uh, or, or, you know, uh, any number of those guys who were sometimes literally like tripping while they conceived these <laughs> stories. And they were reflecting this anxiety at the curdling of the idealism of the sixties, I think in many ways, and the superheroes were failing. They were anti-heroic or they were, uh, you know, tormented dissidents against a kind of universe that was persecuting them. Someone like Warlock or Omega, the unknown, um, or, you know, or, or the, the characters, you know, in, in, um, Steve Gerber's defenders, uh, Nighthawk, they, they reflected or, you know, the turn that's, that, that, um, Captain America takes at that moment into being this, character who renounces around the time of Watergate renounces his affiliation and becomes someone called the nomad instead. This was the kind of superhero I identified with, you know, the sort of, uh, end of the line, anti-heroic, uh, you know, um, soul searching, miserable superhero of the early and mid seventies. And so super goat man, isn't that different from one of those guys? I mean, do you think you'll write any more about superheroes or has it gotten so big now that it's sort of lost some of its appeal? I don't think I have much left to say. I think if I look back, I'm almost surprised at how much energy I was able to pour into the, that vehicle. You know, it, it, as a as a reader, and I mean this in the broadest sense, a comic book reader and a reader per se – I'd pretty much exhausted my interest in the, the image of the superhero, the, the, that iconography by the time I was 17 years old. And I was turning more to reading R. Crumb comics and, uh, and, and books, genre fiction and literary fiction. In college, uh, Watchmen was published. And, um, I mean, in, in the years that I was, in college and then dropped out of college. And that turned my head. I read that. But what is that except a total end game? You know, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's an autopsy. It's saying these figures are unbearably contradictory and they're not sustainable. <laughs> so I was very, you know, that was kind of my last flirtation with the, the, superhero, you know, in, in terms of my own appetite as a reader for, for new stories. Now I'd sometimes go back and page through the old, my old tattered copies of Omega or, or Ragman or one of these other kind of distaff characters that I was weirdly into. But 
I agreed with Alan Moore's autopsy in, in Watchmen. I didn't think there was anything, uh, anything left. And so the fact that they've taken over the culture at large, and in some ways I'm almost a party to that by, um, you know, writing about them in, in a way in, in, in the Fortress of Solitude, uh, is peculiar to me. I, 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 I don't, I can't really celebrate it. It doesn't seem that interesting to me as a film goer with a tremendous commitment to the, you know, classical genre image of Hollywood history. You know, the fact that the Western is a sort of incredible, uh, vehicle for talking about things that are much, much larger than just, uh, the actual West. You know, it, 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 it conveys a lot of, information and arguments and also needless to say a lot of insane falsehoods about the 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 factual story of uh the american west but it's also a kind of allegorical space where pure uh morality tales and and uh, existential stories can be worked out I, i i have a deep investment in westerns as a genre i have a deep investment in film noir uh the the screwball comedy means a lot to me as far as like film genres go I think one of the least satisfying film genres I've ever encountered is the contemporary superhero movie, which just seems to me um, kind of dead on arrival. I don't find those movies uh, to be, you know, um, they don't speak to me. I can't, I can't even get into the, like the, the hair splitting about, you know, Oh, there, but there's three or four good ones. I just don't see any life there. In fact, I don't see them as deeply, innately related to the comic books, uh, to comic books or graphic novels as a medium. It seems to me, um, it, for, for reasons I could go on about if you really want me to, <laughs> I don't know if you want me to, it seems to me there's a disconnect at a fu- fundamental formal level, uh, between what a comic book does when you encounter it and what a, uh, a CGI superhero movie does when you encounter it that mean that I just don't find that that action is, you know, uh, translatable. And so, uh, no, I, I there's a long winded way of saying, <laughs> I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, I, I, um, I wrote about the failure of powers. That's what I write about in fortress of solitude. Having the magic ring is utterly useless. You can't save anyone on those terms. Right. Uh, in a way I'm, I'm rehearsing that same, uh, sense of exhaustion about vicarious powers again in Gambler, Gambler's Anatomy with the uselessness of the, uh, of the telepathic power in that book. Well, yo, so let's talk about Gambler's Anatomy. You mentioned that there's this fairly useless telepathic power. Could you talk about why you decided to put telepathy into the book? I, I'll try. It's, um, in some ways, it's like the mysterious, uh, secret sauce in that book. Even to me as a, as, as the writer of it, I wasn't, I didn't sort of invite it into the space. I, I, I had a plan. My plan was to write a book about a, a backgammon hustler. And my plan was to write about an expatriate character. And, um, my plan was to write about this devastating facial surgery. You know, I mean, what's funny for me in a way is I did have a genre thought going in. I thought, I want this to be like a David Cronenberg movie. I want it to be, you know, I mean, not, I don't really mean like an early one. It was nowhere near, um, 
has, uh, you know, desublimated in its, in its, uh, sexuality or its bloodiness or its craziness as the early Cronenberg. But I wanted to write something like a kind of quiet novel of menace with a, with a lot of body horror just lurking under the surface. So something maybe more like late David Cronenberg. And in that sense, I was going into this book thinking, um, Hey, you know, maybe this is my belated, uh, first attempt to write a horror novel. Now, I, you know, especially, uh, in a, in a context like the, you know, or a venue like your podcast, I should put a provision on that, which is that it's only opening myself up to the mockery of the true <laughs> horror, horror aficionados to speak of this book in those terms, because anyone who cares for that tradition is going to say, A, it's not scary enough and B, it's not transgressive or, or, or creepy or gory enough. It just doesn't qualify. And I would agree. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have encouraged my publisher to put the word horror onto the dust jacket. But in my mind, it was usefully thought of in those terms that I really wanted to write about a character's descent into a kind of hell. And I also wanted the surgical chapters to be, you know, to a certain degree, a kind of like read them through, you know, through your hands. Like, I don't want to look at the page, but I got to look at the page, you know, have those, those chapters, uh, involve a kind of specificity about the, the, the body horror and a duration, you know, have them go on and on and on so that the reader might be tempted to say, uh, you know, get me out of here. And I was very interested in the, the, in the sense in which the book seemed to me like it echoed certain kinds of, um, stories or, or, or movies of, 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 uh, menace and horror. And I was thinking of eyes without a face, the great French, uh, medical horror film from, from the 1950s. And I was thinking, uh, of the, um, the great paranoid, uh, film by David Frankenheimer with rock Hudson, uh, called, um, Crap, why am I blocking the, the title of this? Um, it's, uh, it's it, it, in it, uh, a, a kind of average middle-aged businessman aging, living in the suburbs, uh, applies for, it's called seconds. And in seconds, this guy applies for a special, uh, secret operation where you can have yourself made youthful and glamorous again. And they basically take his face off and put Rock Hudson's face on instead. And then the rest of the film is played by Rock Hudson. And needless to say, it doesn't work out and it doesn't work out in the most dramatic. And, and it's like a, it's like a super developed and exquisitely photographed, uh, and written Twilight Zone episode. And then, so that was sort of the mode I wanted to be in was, was paranoid, uh, Rod Serling, um, horror, you know, uh, identity horror, you know, what happens if your face is taken off? And I, I, in none of these plans to write about the gambling or to write about the surgery or, or to write about Berlin and Singapore, as I was excited to do, did, uh, did my character necessarily need to be telepathic? <laughs> and in a weird way, I think I inched into that territory despite myself. I was looking for a form of interiority, uh, that this extremely superficial and, 
strangely flat character could have. And I wanted to talk about his desire not to know other people. And the, the idea of a refused telepathic power, a declined telepathic power suddenly seemed to me a really beautiful kind of allegorical way to describe someone who's saying basically no thank you to, to other human beings. He'd rather stay in the bubble of his, his own solipsistic narcissism. He doesn't want to know how other people feel. Um, and no sooner had I committed to it as a kind of metaphorical or allegorical gesture than I realized I liked it too much to leave it on the table as a kind of a figure, figurative language. I wanted it. I liked it. And so there I was, you know, writing my first chapter, having planned the book. Actually, it was one of the books I've come nearest to really planning completely before I write it. I mostly improvise. I, 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 I you know, on the spectrum of, you know, improvisation versus planning, I'm, I tend to be strongly on the, on the side of improvisation. But this book, I had to kind of a, uh, a map going in. And this had not appeared on the map, but, but it emerged in the first chapter when I began actually writing about the, the character. And, um, and I loved it and I committed to it, even though I didn't know what I was driving at. In a sense, I didn't know what place it had in this plan. Uh, and it, it stayed, it stayed alive in the book. It's sustained. And, and I mean, it's, you know, in some ways it's kind of a thread or a whisper. I think it's even eligible to be read as a metaphor, you know, and, and, this speaks to my attachment to that that mode, which I associate in some ways with, uh, you know, Kafka's fiction or with The Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. Or, you know, it goes back to something like Ambrose Bierce and Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. And that's the mode where there's a disturbance. There's a ripple in the reality of the story. But you don't know for certain. You can't always be clear as to whether that disturbance, that weirdness, that uh, uncanniness is properly located on the inside of the character's head or the outside of the character's head. Well, yeah, and you mentioned the book is really uncanny and you don't know what's true and what's not. I really felt reading the book like I was going insane. And I was just wondering, did you, you. Uh, <laughs> is, is that what you're going for? Do you feel like you have to go a little bit insane to write a book like this? Or Well, I certainly wanted to impose a kind of um, sense of a dissolving self on the, on the reader. I mean, much as, you know, I want you to feel like you have Tourette syndrome for the, for the extent of the time you're reading Motherless Brooklyn. You know, I think if that book works, it's because it forces you to experience it as a kind of mirror as, you know, potentially, uh, that it's telling you about how your own brain is working. And that you have to sort of um, accept the diagnosis, at least until you close the book. And then you can immediately be relieved and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was him, not me. <laughs> and I think that I was, I wanted to write a book about, uh, not just the disintegration of, of self, but in a way about how flimsy the contraption of self is to begin with. You know, the whole point about Bruno, my character in Gambler's Anatomy, is that when you begin to see how he's arranged himself as a personality moving through the world, that it's really a kind of a claptrap 
construction to begin with. It's it's very very provisional. It relies enormously on other people's, you know, on received impressions. Sort of like, well, people see me this way. Okay, that's good enough. That'll be who I am. Uh, and so the moment that this flimsy contraption is put under pressure, and of course I put it under enormous pressure by the middle of the book. Um, it starts to seem like it it was never viable. Like, how could you reach middle age and have so little to to speak of in the way of a personality? Uh, well, this, you know, I'm not accusing my reader or, or confessing myself to being um, a tissue-thin uh, persona, but I do feel interested in and I want to explore the ways in which what seems so rock solid to us, you know, identity, you know, me, who I am, come on, I'm right here. I feel myself every day. I wake up and there I am again. Uh, how it might be, in fact, uh, reliant in, in some surprising ways upon, um, you know, kind of, uh, very, uh, you know, kind of provisional structures that were, there, that were, um, you know, kind of like when you go through Los Angeles and you see all these buildings that were thrown up in 10 minutes, uh, like a hot dog stand that was thrown up in 10 minutes a hundred years ago and it's still standing. And it's like, well, you know, there, there was, there was never an earthquake. There was never a hurricane. It doesn't snow here and it's still standing. You know, I guess that's, you know, a building that, um, a lot of, a lot of who we are may be, uh, kind of make do, makeshift, uh, receive notions scraps, impressions that we sort of stuck to and, uh, they worked well enough. We moved forward. And then one day we turned around and, uh, nothing better had ever come along. So that, that turns out to have been who you are. (laughs) I mean, one, one, as a science fiction fan, one line that really jumped out at me is the, the brain surgeon character thinks at one point that heart surgeons are like Scotty on the enterprise down in the engine room, whereas the brain <laughs> surgeons are like the Vulcans. And I was just right. wondering, is that an analogy that you came up with or did some doctor actually say that to you? I think that popped into my head unbidden. I certainly, you know, I had my, uh, my short intense phase as a, you know, I, there was a point at which Star Star Trek, and I mean by this, you know, uh, Nimoy, Shatner, uh, Star Trek, Seemed like, uh, it had a, a fund of metaphors for anything. I just, I just looked at it as kind of like one of the, it was like a language to me when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, there's something about the archetypal quality of those, those first episodes, the first three years that, um, that, that I, you know, I, I used to play a game. I think I even inserted this into, um, into uh the fortress of solitude a couple of the teenagers are playing a game uh where they're talking about the beatles and the wizard of oz and star trek as the kind of pivotal or emblematic uh instances of you know character type that you could basically break any group of friends or any human nuclear family or any uh important configuration of personalities in the arts down into, you know, who was, who was John, who was Paul, who was Ringo, who was George. Uh, or you could equally with equal credibility, you could say who's Scotty, who's Spock, who's Kirk, you know, and who's, who's bones. And, and, um, so it wasn't very, (laughs) 
<laughs> it wasn't a very esoteric leap for me to have this sort of nerdy head up his ass surgeon uh default to the same kind of uh comparison yeah yeah okay so the the latter section of the book takes place in berkeley and there are these kind of uh, there's an anarchist character and he's constantly referencing all these anarchist slash communist writers uh yeah. kropotkin emma goldman mikhail bakunin bookchin novatore uh i'm not really familiar with them terribly uh, would you say are are these um writers that you think sort of their ideas didn't pan out, or do you think that they're people who readers should investigate more? Oh, I think that would be a fantastic result. I know that the anarchism in the in the, the book is um, kind of sealed in a um, absurdist, uh, you know, holding area because you encounter it only in the space of this uh, hamburger stand. Right? <laughs> it's been totally engulfed within the um, the great symbol of American capitalism, which is the, the fast food restaurant. So how can, how can anarchism possibly be a living presence if it's um, been uh, sealed up inside this, um, you know, cardboard container uh, full of, you know, sliders. But um, for what it's worth, those figures are immensely, uh, what should I say? Arousing to me. I, 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 you know, I actually, am, I'm weird about anarchism, capital A anarchism in that I grew up inside, uh, punk subculture to, to an extent when I was a kid, I, I was very drawn to it. It seemed like a, uh, safe home for certain kinds of sensations or feelings. It, it, you know, my alienation is the simplest word for it. I, my alienation found a home as a teenage punk. And, but the, the capital A anarchists were like the bridge too far. The guys who were spray painting that A with a circle around it always seemed to me like the violent punks who I wanted nothing to do with. So I was, uh, given this weird, um, anxiety about, uh, the history of political anarchism, even as I very, very slowly became someone who was actively cultivating some kind of comprehension of the the history of the American left, which, you know, needless to say, that interest culminates in a to to an enormous and, you know, uh almost impossible extent in in a long novel I wrote about it just just a few years ago called Dissident Gardens. But anarchism is for me it's still like the coming understanding. I'm still uh it's like I'm taking it out of some weird deep freeze in my own brain. And um you know, I, 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 I can't account for myself in the, in the simple sense of having inserted those writers and those quotations because I do use real quotations from real anarchists in in that in in Garrett's conversation in the book, the hamburger flipper. Um, it's not like I had a program that I was sort of like, and here's where I'll get people to think about this. It's more like, even as I was inching towards a more genuine and open engagement with a long delayed open engagement with the actual history of actual anarchist thinking in my own life in a very scattershot flirt flirtation. Uh, but it's, it's sort of underway. I was developing my feeling for this character and what he would care about. And, you know, daring 
myself to take him seriously at certain levels, even as I knew he was a figure of, um, you know, absurd compromise. And, you know, he's, he's, his, his powers are qualified or compromised in all sorts of ways in the book. I mean, he's a kind of, he's a kind of super goat man, if you want to think of him in those terms, um, lurking in the book. And in that way, he also relates to another very, uh, paradoxical character uh from from a book called chronic city he's a he's a miniature version of a character i wrote called Perkis tooth who's there to provoke uh not just the reader but to provoke the writer into you know thinking harder um about dismissed uh, you know, it, he, he's insisting on historical knowledge. He's saying, um, you're, you're floating in a, a bubble of convenience and, and amnesia. And, um, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be like the Jiminy Cricket here. I'm going to say, uh, you, 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 um, you took your eye off the ball and you did it a long time ago, but it's not too late to take this stuff seriously. Okay, so one last thing I really wanted to ask you about while I have you is that you were very involved as an editor in getting the work of Philip K. Dick out to a wider audience, both the Exegesis and the Library of America. And I was just wondering if you could talk about just sort of personally, what does that mean to you to to have you know brought his work to a wider audience? Uh, it means it means the world to me. I, I he was such a you know when I talk about uh, punk identity when I was you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, uh, being a a safe haven for my alienation for the for the the difficulty of being human that I experienced in those years. The other and equally crucial safe haven for me in that exact same time frame was discovering Philip K. Dick. He in the simplest sense, his writing made me feel that I wasn't alone, you know, that that I wasn't crazy and that I wasn't alone and that my my worldview, my my apprehensions about how the world was structured uh, could be described. They could be uh, modeled. They could be made fun of, <laughs> you know, it, it's like he is, it's more than saying he expanded my brain or expanded my worldview. He made my own dawning worldview safe in a sense. He took care of it. So there's very few, writers or very few cultural figures, you know, just the smallest possible number, uh, who go in the category of kind of saving your life. You know, for me, uh, you know, David Byrne and Bob Dylan, uh, which is not to say that this, you know, you, you're not, you're not going to be critical of their failings, but, but, you know, the intervention is at that level. And Philip K. Dick is the writer who, you know, and Kafka, who helped me accept who I was and, and how I felt. So the fact that, you know, then, well, so with circles back to the very beginning of the conversation, right? Then having felt that way, that I could identify that he was in, in a weird way in, in like, uh, he was in disrepute or he was in no repute. He was, uh, he, he was, he'd fallen out of, the cultural argument. He wasn't even consistently cherished within the uh, holding area that was genre science fiction. He was sort of 
viewed with an arched eyebrow within the history of the genre by many people at that point as a kind of a, you know, awkward figure or an embarrassing figure. And so I participated in this really, you know, uh, grassroots level. I got involved with Paul Williams, the great rock critic who, who, you know, created Crawdaddy magazine, but also devoted himself in the middle of his life story to, um, creating, well, he was, he interviewed, uh, Phil Dick for Rolling Stone magazine, which in some ways was the most, the, the, the largest chunk of legitimation from the culture at large that Dick received during his life. And, you know, from that moment on, every paperback edition of his books quoted Rolling Stone, uh, on the, on the, on the jacket, usually on the front of the jacket, right? So it was a really important gesture. And then having done that, Paul was made into Phil's literary executor and, um, what he did, because he was a, a zine guy, he'd created, uh, helped create pop and music writing, rock writing by starting a zine called Crawdaddy. And he was involved in science fiction zines with David Hartwell. Well, so what he did was he started a zine essentially called the Philip K. Dick newsletter, a Philip K. Dick Society newsletter. And I helped Paul do this. And so, you know, the end point is that these books end up in the Library of America in these gorgeous hardcover editions that nestle alongside, you know, Faulkner and, 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 and Hemingway and Flannery O'Connor and the speeches of Lincoln and, you know, um, so many other astounding artifacts from, from the Americanist canon, right? Which is where Dick ended up and where he belongs. Uh, I have no reservations. Uh, but that, that's only the culmination of something. I, as a kid, essentially, when I was 19 and I dropped out of college and ran away to Berkeley, what I was going there to do was to involve myself in the Philip K. Dick Society and help Paul to, you know, fold and stamp these newsletters and send them out to people who cared. I think the, um, at its peak, the subscription roles, uh, were in the, still in the, only in the three figures, in the high three figures, it was like 800 people were receiving this newsletter. That is to say that this is an example of a tiny, tiny, uh, contingent of passionate true believers changing the universe because that is the, the things Paul was doing and the things that the, that the recipients of those newsletters were doing by continuing to read Dick's writing when it was totally out of print in America. And I mean, it was 100% out of print in America. The only book you could buy in a new bookstore was a uh, movie tie-in edition of To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep that had Harrison Ford on the cover and was retitled. Um, that group of readers and critics and true believers changed literary history. You know, Philip K. Dick is taught in not just a handful of universities that happen to have, you know, maybe a kind of a homely little science fiction class. It's taught, he's taught in, in, in critical theory and American studies, and he's taught in American literature contexts and, um, and he's read everywhere. And the story I'm telling is one that people almost don't, can't believe is true anymore. And it's, you know, it's part of my living memory and the living memory of, uh, a, a bunch of other readers my age and older who, who saw him, you know, I mean, there's, there's almost no comparison for his, um, retrieval, uh, from 
ignominy or from, from the margins of American literature, uh, unless you look to stories like, uh, Melville, um, there, there, or, you know, or the way Henry James suffered a period of being out of print. Um, and, um, so it's to be, to be part of that experience because it's really as much as it's an accomplishment for me, it was an experience that I was a part of. Um, I can't say enough what it means to me. Yeah, no, I mean, Philip K. Dick is one of my favorite authors. So to see all that happen was just really, really exciting for me. So thank you so much for the role that you played in that. You bet. You bet. Um, and unfortunately, we're all out of time. So Jonathan, do you have any just uh, other projects you want to mention or final thoughts or anything? Oh, I'm all out of projects. I just <laughs> finished this book and I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming now. I'm back to dreaming uh, of, of what might come next. Thanks so much for the co good conversation. Oh, yeah. No, thank you so much for joining us. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jonathan Leatham for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Stefano Dombrosi in the UK, who writes, Brilliant. Topics, content, guests, and presenter are really excellent. Actual fans talking to fans. Love the passion in the conversations and the depth in which you go. Would like an episode on classic sci-fi books, best ones to read, and possibly the evolution of sci-fi literature I think would be great. Keep it up. So big thanks again to Stefano D'Ambrosi for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Unbound Worlds for sponsoring today's show. Remember to enter their free book giveaway over at unboundworlds.com sweeps. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. <laughs>